It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What is going on? Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. And thank you for subscribing as well. Just go to the PeteCalendarShow.com and you can subscribe for free. And then you get the podcast every day at your smartphone or tablet. Also, thank you very much to patrons who make the program possible. Folks like Trent and Mark, Chris, Sarah and Barry, Josh, JF, Theodore, Jim, Jonathan, Brian, couldn't do the show without you guys. I do appreciate it and all of the support. They became patrons. They get exclusive content like the live stream that we're doing tonight. We do every Thursday. Uh, So uh, you can become a patron as well just by going to thepetecalendarshow.com. There is a link at the top there, and uh, that takes you to the Patreon account. I mean, I guess also you could, yes, go to Patreon search my name, and then you'll find me that way as well. Uh, So that's how you do that. All right. A lot of stuff going on at the legislature. This is, as I mentioned uh, in an earlier podcast, this is uh, the week before the crossover, and this is where all of the bills that are in the House and all of the bills that are in the Senate have to be done. And well, for almost all the bills, I know there are some exceptions, but Almost all of the bills, um, they have to cross over to the other chamber, right? A bill that starts in the House, goes through its committee process, gets a vote on the floor, then gets sent to the Senate, has to happen by May 13th, crossover. So you start having these, you know, massive um, uh, agendas. Like last night, it it was like a six-hour meeting. They ran through like 40 to 50 bills. They're doing it again today uh, in the House. In the Senate... It's not quite such a heavy load because there are just fewer senators in the House. You've got, you know, 120 and in the uh, in the uh, Senate, you got 50. So it's it's not as bad. (laughs) Um, And so it's a lighter load. And that's why I saw uh, what Colin Campbell over at the uh, uh, News and Observer, he points out that there's a reason why all these state representatives try to become state senators, why they make that move to the Senate is because the workload is a little bit lighter. You don't have to sit through, you know, eight hours. And then there was another like a rules committee after that. Oh, it's just terrible. Anyway, so a couple of big ticket items that they advanced in the House yesterday uh, and outrage has ensued. Of course, uh, there is gun. There are a couple of gun laws. There are a couple of police reform laws. And there are some education laws, or I should say bills. They're not a law yet. These are bills, okay? And as you might imagine, most of the folks on the left are just beside themselves with all of the, uh, you know, the criticism and how dare they do these things. So let's start with pistol purchase permits. We're going to start with the guns, okay? They did a bunch of different things, but first they did, um, there was a, a pistol purchase permit change in this in the law and um it concerns the applications for the permits now if you don't know how this works i'll get into some of the details i'm not going to go like real deep uh just because i understand a lot of people you know they're not gun people they don't care to know about these laws um and generally speaking those are the people that uh seem to be opposed to all guns those are the ones that don't know the laws um i really there is a venn diagram have you ever noticed this like if you do a venn diagram the circles you know it's almost a single circle there's so much overlap between the people who are anti-gun and the people who don't know anything about gun laws it's like 
it's almost a just one circle. It's just a completely overlapping two circles uh, Venn diagram. Anyway, uh, House Bill 483 concerns the application for the purchase permits. And Representative Dudley Green from Avery, McDowell, and Mitchell counties uh, represents those areas. He introduced the bill that would make some changes here. It originally started um, as a, at a request of the Sheriff's Association as a uh, way to um, to make a, a, a more efficient application process for both sheriffs and applicants by putting the uh, mental health records release at the front part of the application, even on an online application. All right, so there's a mental health component when you go to get a pistol purchase permit from the sheriff's office. Uh, and by the way, you're allowed to get five of them at once. So, and each permit is good for the purchase of one pistol. So one of the things that whenever, you, um, whenever you're going to buy them, you, you, you should always get five because they last, I forget how long, they last several, I think it's a couple of years, but um, you, know, you never know when you might be someplace or whatever you want to make a purchase of a, of a pistol and you can use the, the permit rather than have to you know, go to the sheriff's office again, wait a couple of weeks or whatever for them to give you the permit. It's only five bucks. So you might as well just do five at once. Pay $25, now you have five permits. Uh, or you can get the concealed carry permit. And if you have a concealed carry, that counts as a pistol purchase permit for any number of guns. You can keep using it over and over again, and it lasts five years, your uh, concealed carry. And the uh, application process for the concealed carry is far more rigorous than just the pistol purchase permit. Okay, so you just walk into the sheriff's office. You're like, I want to buy a, a pistol. Here, can, here's my money. Can I get a permit? They then say, yes, we're going to do a background check on you. And then you wait to hear back from them. And then they, they issue them. They call you up. Hey, come get them. And then you go get them. And then you can take that down to the, the firearms uh, dealer and you can give them the permit. And then they sell you the gun. That's that's essentially how the process works. And I know like I'm being overly broad here, but uh, it's for the sake of brevity. Uh, also, Two components to this bill. Two components. First, the documentation needed to apply at the sheriff's office. Would eliminate the current confidentiality exception, allowing sheriffs to check the National Incident Criminal Background Check System for uh, and, and local records for in, uh, records of involuntary commitment to determine permit eligibility. All right, so this first part is simply sort of an administrative cleanup. It streamlines the process for the sheriff's office. It says that the sheriff shall request disclosure to the sheriff uh, of any court orders concerning uh, the mental health or mental capacity of the applicant to be used only for this purpose. Okay, so that's sort of the streamlining of the process. The second portion, it creates a new misdemeanor crime of domestic violence because there's a loophole or a gap, as Representative Green says, and there's a gap in this reporting system due to our current law. The current system of going to a sheriff to get a purchase permit, it's 100 years old, and all of these permits go through the sheriff's offices, uh, although there is another bill, and I will get to this uh, in a second, that that bill would eliminate the uh, this pistol purchase permit system. And if the system is eliminated, then the first part that I went over, uh, the first part 
uh, would be eliminated as well because it would be not necessary. Okay, you would not need to be going to the sheriff any longer. So the first, all that stuff I went over that would kind of be wiped away. But the second part, if the PPP, this pistol purchase permit, if that system is eliminated, then North Carolina would be relying on the NICS system to run its background checks as most states do. Hence the need to close this particular loophole uh, and create a, a crime, a misdemeanor crime of domestic violence. According to a federal law, um, a person is not permitted to possess a firearm if the person has been convicted of a misdemeanor crime of domestic violence. North Carolina currently does not have any statute containing the necessary elements to meet that criteria. Um, so uh, that means no misdemeanor assault or domestic crime of, in uh, North Carolina currently would qualify as a federal prohibitor for possession of a firearm. So that has to change. Therefore, none of those convictions would result in a NICS check system report denying the person's ability to possess a firearm. So in order to fix that loophole, North Carolina needs to enact a statute containing the elements satisfying the federal definition of a misdemeanor crime of domestic violence. Uh, and if a person is convicted of this new crime, a federal prohibition on possessing a firearm would apply to that person. And as a result, that should be picked up on a NICS check. Does that make sense? Because of the way we've been doing it via the sheriff's offices, uh, this it wasn't necessary for us to have a misdemeanor crime of domestic violence that met federal statutes, and so it was we didn't have it. And now we are going to need it, especially if this bill to get rid of the sheriff's system, if that goes away. Um, then Representative Green starts going into like some of the more granular details, which actually prompted a bit of an interruption here. For what purpose, gentlemen from Robson, Representative Graham Rice? A question for the bill sponsor. Representative Green's gentleman yield? Yes, sir. He yields. Do you know of anyone that's against this, sir? <laughs> Not that I know of at this moment. Uh, gentlemen, gentlemen concluded his remarks at this time. Yes, Mr. Speaker. Okay, so that is that's the legislative way to say, "Hey, shut up! You're talking too long." Right? <laughs> the bill did have unanimous support, even from Democrats. Okay, uh, then the next one they took up on this pistol purchase permit topic uh, was the elimination of the system altogether. I'll get to that in a minute. First, you need to get to Mattress Man. If you are thinking about getting a mattress, get yourself one from the Biltmore Collection, and if you do it now, you'll get a free box at Mattress Man stores. A free box spring when you buy a mattress from the Biltmore Collection at Mattress Man. Uh, Biltmore Collection, these are inspired by our very own local landmark. Mattress Man is an exclusive retailer of the Biltmore Collection with its luxurious blend of old world craftsmanship and new world exclusive technology. It's made by Restonic, and that means you get uh, maximum adjustability. It's got five support zones so your spinal alignment is going to be uh, well aligned. It's going to be correct. You're going to get optimal balance of pressure point relief and support, which all uh, you know adds up to a healthier sleep and a more restorative sleep. And uh, it's got edge to edge sleep surfaces, which is important. Like I've actually found that like I sometimes sleep with part of my arm hanging off the bed. 
So, I mean, I, my arm deserves support. Why shouldn't my arm have the same support that the rest of my body has, right? They have flexible financing options. For example, Synchrony Finance offers zero down, zero interest for up to 72 months for qualified applicants. You can go to mattressmanstores.com, you click the financing link, and you can apply and get pre-approved right now. Five-star local delivery service, nationwide shipping, and a 120-day comfort guarantee. Experience the difference at Mattress Man 4 stores in Asheville, Hendersonville, and Arden. Mattressmanstores.com. Buy local and sleep better. So the uh, the first portion of this pistol purchase permit uh, change approved unanimously in the House. Then we get to the dis- uh, the discussion of the outright elimination of the pistol purchase permit mechanism with a warning from the Speaker of the House, Tim Moore, that he would very much like to get the vote done now versus later. Members, we're going to try to knock out uh, 398. Uh, I know this is a bill that has... Uh, some strong opinions on both sides, but uh, if it goes long, the uh, bill will probably be calendar tomorrow. So with that admonition, House Bill 398, the court will read. <laughs> and so Representative, then they read, they read the title uh, of the bill. House Bill 398, a bill to be an act to repeal pistol purchase permits. General Senator North Carolina enacts. The gentleman from Catawba, Representative Adams, has recognized the debate the bill and is reminded sometimes less is more. All right, so Representative Jay Adams, Republican from Catawba, he introduces the bill and he explains uh, how you know one goes about purchasing a permit in North Carolina. And as I mentioned earlier, it's always helpful to explain to people when you're in this discussion, because usually a lot of people in the discussion about gun control don't know what the laws are. Uh, so that's, again, always helpful to kind of start off with a, you know, with a refresher or a primer. If you wish to purchase a handgun, at a retail outlet in North Carolina, you have to have a pistol purchase permit issued by the sheriff in the county in which you reside or a concealed carry license. The pistol purchase permit is generally, the sheriff will issue one, he's done a NICS background check, and he may issue up to five permits, which are good for five years. The concealed carry license the sheriff also issues, but it is subject to a much more rigorous background check, fingerprinting, an FBI background check, and that also allows you to purchase handguns at the point of purchase. During the pandemic, we have developed a serious problem. A lot of people wanted to get handguns for personal protection. And so what happened in the some of the urban counties the sheriff's departments were overloaded with requests for pistol purchase permits. The result was a very long backlog. In Mecklenburg County today, they're processing pistol purchase permit applications that were originated in November. Okay. Um, so quick question here. Did the pistol purchase permit applications spike because of the pandemic or might there have been another reason <laughs> why people in particularly the urban counties made a mad dash to the sheriff's office to get these permits? Might it have something to do with, I don't know, something going on concurrently with the pandemic? Maybe over like last summer, there may have been, of course, it was the riots. Like that's what drove people to the sheriff's offices 
to seek out the permits. This is why they did it. People were not feeling safe and government was allowing it to happen. And so they're like, you know what? I need to go out and protect myself and my property and my family. So I'm going to go get a uh, pistol. And so therefore I need the purchase permit. And in counties like Mecklenburg County, uh, I was hearing this last year while it was going on. I think we may have actually even covered it. The, the delay, the backlog was months. And then you started having sheriffs, and I believe Mecklenburg was one of them, that were like, yeah, you know what, we're just not even going to bother doing this. Remember when they got slapped down? I think a court slapped down one sheriff uh, in one county. I forget where. Uh, so this has been brewing a lot of, for a long time, and what Republicans are looking to do now is to take this out of the hands of sheriffs because the, the law was passed, you know, over 100 years ago, and the, the roots of it are racism. They didn't want black people to be able to get firearms because they were running around killing black people in North Carolina. And so uh, they were like, you know what, let's have them not be able to defend themselves. So they'll have to come to us, the sheriff's office, in order to get their pistol purchase permit. And we'll determine whether they are of good moral character. And that's that. I mean, that's literally what the law is. Yeah. So if you go to and I've linked this up at the Patreon page where I put all of my prep, um, anyone purchasing a firearm from uh, a licensed firearm dealer, right, they go through the NICS check, a firearm purchaser must under the federal Brady law, they have to undergo this NICS background check in North Carolina. They go through this pistol purchase permit just for the pistols. The long gun is okay. Long gun, you're still going to go through the NICS system, but you don't need to go to the sheriff first. If you want a pistol, you do. Yeah. Um, Prior to issuing a permit, the sheriff must fully satisfy him or herself by affidavits, oral evidence, or otherwise that the applicant is of good moral character and that the person, firm, or corporation wants to possess the weapon for one of the following purposes— the protection of the applicant's home, business, person, family, or property, target shooting, collecting, like if you're a gun collector, or hunting, right? You need to find out, what are you going to be using this gun for? Are you going to use this gun to commit a crime? I don't know if I can trust you on this one, and so I'm going to turn you down. Purely arbitrary that the sheriff's, uh, they, they had the latitude to make purely arbitrary decisions over the life of this law. And so uh, this is why they want to get rid of it, because there's this it is it's arbitrary. And also the next system is already doing this work. Okay, so Representative Adams said that he originally was trying to solve a problem of the backlogs. But as he's working with the sheriffs on that, uh, they tell him, hey, you know what? Why don't you just get rid of this whole PPP, the permitting process altogether? Now, what does this mean? What this means that if you wish to go and purchase a handgun today, you're still going to have to go either have a concealed carry license or you're going to undergo a national instant background check check at the point of purchase. So there's still a background check. It's largely the same background check that the sheriff's departments performed before they issued the pistol purchase permits. Now this is taking, what this does is the permitting system does take away resources available to the sheriff's department and this restores that, those capabilities. It's just a matter of economics. 
So Brent Woodcox, an attorney for the General Assembly uh, or over on the Senate side, he said the reason to get rid of this is twofold. Number one, it provides no protection because a background check that isn't uh, already covered by the background check required under federal law. Right. So it's, it's just duplicative. It's not giving you any additional security. And number two, it was originally intended as racist Jim Crow law to keep black people disarmed and unable to protect themselves from the Klan, essentially. Right. Um. Hey, if you are looking to defend your home, then you get a gun, and that means you probably need to uh, get some accessories, and that means you need to get on over to Old Grouch's Military Surplus, downtown Clyde. Uh, It's across the street from the anti-aircraft gun on Main Street, as it has been for 30 years, and he's got all sorts of gun accessories, slings, magazine pouches. That's one of the things when you buy a gun, it's like this whole, it's like... I don't want to say it's like a Barbie collection kind of thing, but it kind of is like you got to accessorize. Once you buy the original thing (laughs) that's got you can then you can customize, accessorize like it's this whole world you get into. So if you're among the record number of new gun owners, let Tim at Old Grouch's Military Surplus help you outfit it with some of the essential accessories. Plus, he's got tons of other stuff, really cool gear. Check out the website, oldgrouch.com, or go on into the store. It's open Monday through Saturday, across the street from the anti-aircraft gun, downtown Clyde, on Main Street, and at oldgrouch.com. So the North Carolina Pistol Purchase Permit System, uh, under uh, review for elimination, and actually this idea is coming from the Sheriff's Association. The National uh, Incident... Uh, check system, the background check, instant criminal background check system, the NIC system, uh, it automatically does this work, okay? The sheriff's permit system is an antiquated leftover law and system from the Jim Crow era, where sheriffs were using uh, the pistol purchase permit system to prevent black people from owning guns, and the NIC system does all of this background check anyway. So if you're going to buy a pistol from a federal licensed firearm dealer, then you're going to run into this system anyway. So this is duplicative. And you got sheriff's offices that, you know, look, you can free them up from doing this work. They don't need to do it if it's already being done. All they have to do is, you know, forward all of the, you know, restraining orders and uh, involuntary commitments and stuff like that and, and arrests. And they just forward that information. It goes into the next system and that's uh, and then their work is done. Um, now, this this does leave open the um, a question of um, private sales. So under North Carolina law, it's unlawful for anybody to sell, give away, transfer, purchase or receive Um, Any pistol, unless the purchaser or receiver has first obtained a license or permit to receive such a pistol by the sheriff of that county where the purchaser or receiver resides, or the purchaser or receiver possesses a valid North Carolina concealed carry permit. Okay, so if you're going to try to sell these, this is what you need, right? The pistol purchase permit or concealed carry, even to give away, to transfer all of this, this requirement to obtain a permit to the transfer of a pistol permit. applies not only to a commercial transaction like at a sporting goods store, but also between private individuals or companies throughout North Carolina. This is the mythical gun show loophole. Yes, technically, two people out in the parking lot could make a transaction like that. But if I'm selling the gun to somebody, I'm requiring the permit. Or if now the permit system goes away, I'm now going through an FFL, a firearms dealer. 
would because that would give me protection because if i sold a gun to somebody they went and used it in a crime then that could come back on me because i don't know what that guy's background is but also if i'm a legitimate gun owner which i am then i'm not going to want somebody bad to get my gun i'm not going to sell my gun to some criminal so they can use it to hurt people why would i do that now i know that maybe not everybody shares that uh, idea which is why the law would hold me accountable if that person took the gun and did something with it right so um it just so i i suspect that getting rid of this pistol purchase permit system i think it might actually drive more people to use an ffl as the go-between i do i think because they would you would want to run it through in the next system to make sure the person you're selling it to um doesn't have a record you know and isn't a criminal of some kind um so there's that now there is a uh, there the democrats voted against this and um uh, they were represented in their uh, argument by Representative Marsha Mori. She's a Democrat from Durham. We should have a House rule that we only have one pistol permit bill a day. But this is our second one. The first one went well. Congratulations. This one I do not support. For over 100 years, we have had a pistol permit purchase permit in North Carolina. It has saved lives. Mm. Someone goes in, they pay $5, there is a background check, and it has worked. There is no reason to take this away from North Carolina. So, again, it's not like we're getting rid of the background checks. It's already being done by NICS, and so that would continue. States that have pistol purchasing permits have 10%. Fewer incidents of shootings and homicides because there is that safeguard. Our sheriffs have opposed repealing this bill until this year. And I'm not sure why they changed their position. Many individual sheriffs have called and said, we want to keep this going. Okay, so why did the Sheriff's Association (laughs) change their mind on this? Um, Well... I've got some uh, I've got some data on that. Let's take a look. So first here, this is uh, from AP Dillon's article at the North State Journal uh, from last month. Quote, we are encouraged to see that the North Carolina Sheriff's Association now agrees to bring gun purchases in North Carolina into the 21st century by eliminating our Jim Crow era permit system and requiring background checks at point of sale. This is a quote from Paul Valone from Grassroots North Carolina. This is a, a pro Second Amendment group. It's a 501c4 firearm advocacy group dedicated to preserving constitutional freedoms and protecting the right to bear arms. Quote, given that a recent UNC School of Law paper found that in Wake County, black applicants are being denied permits three times more often than whites, it is clear that racism is in issuing permits continues to this day. Consequently, we are calling upon Democrat legislators to join in repealing this racist law. Now, this is an interesting component to this debate because you just heard Marsha Mori say, well, this is connected to, you know, fewer gun deaths and this is connected to, um, you know, more people being denied. Well, are they black people? Is there some kind of a connection as to why somebody might be turned down by a and in, for example, Durham and Mecklenburg and Wake? These are black Democrat sheriffs. So. Why are they turning down all of these black folk for their gun permits? 
Maybe they should check into that. <laughs> maybe there's maybe there's there's something there. That's the first part. Um, the second part, a more robust national background check system is the main reason why the sheriff's Association is now backing repeal after years of opposing the idea. North Carolina has made a concerted effort to upload more state mental health records into the database. So that's why they're saying, okay, you know what? That database is now working. And look, I remember within the last 10 years, I mean, since I've been doing this, when we, when, when the gun issue first started, like the NICS system was kind of a joke. It really was. I mean, like people, I don't want to say a joke, but like you, you would you would call in there and you wouldn't get callbacks, you wouldn't get information and stuff wasn't getting reported up there. But as things get more digitized, right, these departments are all becoming, you know, they're all online now and uh, all the records are being digitized. And so the the information collection, retention and, uh, and then retrieval process is far superior now than it ever was. And so what uh, Eddie Caldwell, who is the association, the, Sher- the North Carolina Sheriff's Association executive vice president, said to the AP is that the national background check has done to the pistol purchase permit what email did to the fax machine. And that's it made it obsolete. And so. What they're seeing also is that these sheriffs are pro-Second Amendment folks generally, and they're seeing some of their colleagues in certain jurisdictions that are not. And they're using the pistol purchase permit system as a means to throttle back access to Second Amendment rights. And they're not cool with that. So that's just to answer Representative Maury's question <laughs> uh, You're welcome. Uh, well, I'm a giver. What can I say? Um, also, well, oh, I have more from uh, Representative Maury here. Let's let her finish. We do a thorough job. We search our court records, domestic violence, involuntary commitments. Nix is not a real-time search. You wait for the information to be uploaded. And that could cause a lot of problems. If- okay, but hang on a second. So is the, this is, there's a lag also between the pistol purchase permits, as I went over earlier. I could go in and buy five pistol purchase permits for $25, five bucks a piece, and they're, all, they're good for five years. So I make a, an initial purchase of a firearm today. And then, let's say two years from now, I go and I commit a crime. I get convicted of it or, you know, domestic violence, I get a restraining order, I go crazy, whatever. And now I'm not allowed to own a firearm, but I still have these four other permits. I could go out and buy more guns with those. See, so there is a leg even in the sheriff's uh, system. So there's... This always gets back to the same thing. You know, people looking to break the law will find ways to break the law. (laughs) And so what you want to do is allow the law abiding people a means to defend themselves. And most cops, by the way, agree with this philosophy. They agree with this. They understand this. Speaking of being a police officer, if you are one and you want to keep some of your own money when you're buying or selling a home, uh, then you want to call Rowena Patton and use her and her all-star powerhouse team as your agent. Why? Glad you asked. Because she's the official Homes for Heroes agent in Asheville. And that means buyers and sellers keep 25% back from the realtor commissions through this program that is open to police officers, firefighters, healthcare professionals, educators, and members of the military. So veterans, active duty, retirees. And she's given back about $800,000 to folks in those professions. So give her a call at 333-4483. The website is mountainhomehunt.com. She's the only agent we called to buy our house, and I couldn't recommend her more highly enough. Uh, Give her a call, 828 333 
888-344-4483. Tell her that I sent you and then start packing. Uh, by the way, the bill here passed 70 to 47. The pistol purchase permit bill passed 70 to 47. Uh, that'll go over to the House. There was also a series of... Um, uh, of uh, police reform bills. This came out of the work that the General Assembly, the House was doing um, in the wake of the uh, the Black Lives Matter protests and such. They created, you'll recall, the House Select Committee on Community Relations. And um, the chairman of that committee was Representative John Zoka uh, from Cumberland, Republican. And they introduced a whole bunch of bills. So House Bill 436, it would require law enforcement officers to pass a psychological evaluation before they get hired. Um, and then uh, there's also another component where they would go in for, you know, re- another bill would have, you know, going in for regular assessments. Um, House Bill 547 that allows law enforcement standards commissions to use the National Decertification Index to crack down on officers that are trying to hide past misconduct at other agencies. So they're trying to what he calls trap the bad cops from, you know, picking up and going to a different state or within the state, right? So they're they're trying to make these mandatory re- uh, reporting requirements. House Bill 548 uh, requires any officer who lies under oath to be reported to the Standards Commission, because apparently I did not know there's there's something called a Giglio letter where a judge is like, hey, I don't trust you, cop, to testify in my courtroom. And so there's this letter that goes into like his file or something, but nobody knows about them. So this would make those uh, public as well. Then there is House Bill 536, which is a duty to intervene. It creates an affirmative duty on the part of North Carolina law enforcement officers to intervene and report excessive use of force uh, used by another police officer. The reporting officer is required to intervene when he or she observes another law enforcement officer use force that the reporting officer reasonably believes to exceed the amount of force that is authorized in the situation. The observing officer must also have a reasonable opportunity to intervene, and if safe to do so, shall attempt to prevent the unauthorized use of force. The observing officer must then report the unauthorized use of force to superior within 72 hours after observing it, even if the officer did not have an opportunity to intervene. This is similar to in the military, and I think everybody here knows I'm retired military, that there are certain things that you don't do. For example, uh, on the battlefield, if you capture a prisoner of war, you don't summarily execute them. Um, but just like in battle, when police officers have over 30 million traffic stops a year, and all the other civic uh, going to houses and going to all these things, sometimes the heat of the moment might get a hold of you. It is not unreasonable to expect another police officer or law enforcement officer to intervene if in the heat of the moment somebody's about to do something that is excessive use of force. So uh, that is the essence of this bill. Uh, I certainly appreciate uh, all of our law enforcement officers in the varied and stressful situations that they're in. So this is the nature of the uh, the duty to report. Um, this is actually one of the uh, eight can't wait reform proposals that emerged after the Ferguson riots and the George Floyd. Like part of the discussion has been these eight reform proposals. And there have been some jurisdictions that have already adopted these things. Um, And this is one of those eight can't wait reforms. This measure also won praise from North Carolina House Democrats. First, I would like to say thank you to uh, the bill sponsor, Representative Zoka. I appreciate um, 
this bill and also to the speaker for your um, foresight to make sure that we had this committee. I've heard several things come out of this committee and out of all the things that I've heard, this is indeed an actionable um, item that I agree with everything that you're saying. I really appreciate this. Police have a hard job. Um, they work long hours and they serve um, the community at its worst and at its best. And sometimes it's not always going to go well. But what this does is it allows for reasonable level heads to prevail. Um, it allows for people that are seen as whistleblowers to have the opportunity to cleanly step up and not be seen as a threat or, or taking the blue wall um, to task, but holding their fellow officers accountable and making sure that we can protect and serve and there can be trust between the community um, and police force. I wholly endorse this. This is wonderful to see. Uh, I think we have to start down the road to kind of rebuild uh, faith between the community and the officers, which they deserve to have. So when they see this type of bill coming out of this building, I think it will help us. So all of these proposals that came from the House Select Committee on Community Relations, Law Enforcement and Justice, uh, these all passed unanimously. So uh, real police reform, criminal justice reform occurring in the General Assembly, supported unanimously by Democrats. See, so they can and do actually get a lot of stuff done in a bipartisan fashion. You may not know it from all of the, <laughs> the stuff that gets the focus, but they do get stuff done like that. Right. It is true. All right. So uh, unlike, for example, the Academic Transparency Act, which was in committee and got out of committee over in the House, this is House Bill 755. And uh, the rub here is that it would make uh, schools and teachers post online their lesson plan. Yeah. Just another example of how Republicans hate teachers. Um, the lesson plan is described as follows uh, in the law, quote, an outline of all of the following, the instruction provided by a teacher for a course that includes a list of all instructional materials assigned, distributed, or otherwise presented in the course. Oh, hang on. There you go. Also, when students must select instructional materials from a defined list, all instructional materials are on that list. You have to show that as well. Each grade or school-wide presentation, so grade-wide or school-wide presentation, assembly, lecture, or other activity or event facilitated by the school during instructional hours outside of an individual teacher's classroom, excluding student presentations. The outline shall include a list of each presenter by name and organization and any instructional material used or presented. In other words, we'd like to know what you're doing with these general assemblies or, or with these assemblies for all of the kids. Like if you're going to bring them all together and you're going to have them, you know, identify their own privileges and such, um, then we want to know like who's doing that presentation and what's the material being distributed? Like what is the presentation? And oh my gosh, outrage has ensued. <laughs> How dare you ask teachers to tell parents what they're teaching your kids? What? Who do you think you are in this relationship, parents? My God. The NCAE, you might want to sit down for this. The teachers union, don't call it a union union. They are against, yeah, they are against this, okay? So here's just, I feel the need to point this out because it is part of the law. The governing body of public school of a public school unit, so the school board, okay, shall ensure that each school 
is prominently displayed on the school website, organized at a minimum by subject area and grade level, and the lesson plans that were used at the school during the prior school year should be posted there, okay? So the school district, okay, has to ensure that each school would be posting this stuff onto their school website. Think about why people might object to this. Do you know what the arguments are? By the way, I am not a sympathetic figure for the teachers that are crying about this uh, because as a person who worked in radio for 20 years, I can tell you radio stations collect all of this stuff all the time. We do, they do. It's for the public file. See, when you have, uh, when you, when you have control over a, a public entity or the public airwaves in this case, when you have that kind of control, with it comes responsibility. And so in order to prove that you are fulfilling right, the terms of the license that you asked for to have this authority, you have to prove that you're doing some community benefit. And so radio stations keep a public file folder and they fill it with all of the stuff that they do that shows a public benefit. So again, I'm probably not the best person to come to like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I have to tell people what I'm doing. Like that's most people actually. There are very few jobs I think left where you just have complete unaccountability where you get to have this kind of awesome responsibility and nobody checks up to make sure that what you're doing is actually, you know, a good job. <laughs> I'm not aware of this. Um, I'm not aware of a better place either than to go uh, to get your equipment rental or purchases actually uh, than general equipment rental. So they do both, right? They've got the rentals, obviously, like the big stuff, earth movers, scaffolding, uh, pressure washers, which is a great idea. You know, you got to do your uh, house or else, you know, the hoe is going to get all over you. Well, the homeowners association, neighborhood association, right? They're like, we see some mildew on the siding and you need to take care of that. And you're like, I don't want to buy a pressure washer and I don't want to spend, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars for somebody to come and pressure wash the house. And I got to check to make sure they're bonded so they don't fall off a ladder and sue me. So how about you get a pressure washer yourself? And this way, if you fall off the ladder, you're not going to sue yourself. <laughs> well, that's why you get the scaffolding, see? And you get it all, and then you do the job yourself. It's perfect. They've got tons of tools. Uh, check them out, generalrents.com, generalrents.com, um, or go on in to their uh, showroom. They are located in Weaverville. They're at the intersection of Reams Creek Road and Merriman Avenue, family-owned and operated for three generations. Uh, General Equipment Rental. They're also your official, licensed Husqvarna and Honda Outdoor Power Equipment Sales and Service Provider. So they've got all of the tools uh, that you need to do battle with your yard. Trimmers, blowers, they've got the auto mower. That thing is so cool, just drives around your yard all the time and just keeps your grass cut. You never have to cut the grass again. Go check them out, generalrents.com, and think outside your toolbox. So the NCAE, don't call it a union, Association of Educators, um, they've been uh, obviously organizing against this bill in the, uh, in the House. This is the uh, Academic Transparency Act, which in a nutshell says, hey, teachers, you got to give the lesson plan uh, to the parents. You, like Parents have to be able to see this stuff, and uh, it's going to get posted up at the school uh, website and the district will make sure that that happens. And by the way, the um, they've got a thing in here too about the 
do, do, do the DPI. Yeah, public access uh, to the information for the school year ending June 30th shall be maintained by the, uh, the public school unit until June 30th of the following year. Okay, so you got a one year. You go back last year's lesson plan, put it all up. Um, the Department of Public Instruction shall make available to public school units one or more templates for providing information as required by this law. So um, they're going to give you the template. So you just got to fill it in at the school level. The union's very upset. And uh, they sent out a press release. Uh, this is the uh, the president of the NCAE, Tamika Walker-Kelly, uh, who says there is no discernible educational or administrative advantage <laughs> to this, which are those the only standards? There's no discernible educational or administrative advantage. So parental oversight, taxpayer oversight, there, that that's not an advantage. She, if it is, she doesn't. She does not mention it. She limits, uh, I guess, the, the criteria by which we assess all legislation to only those two areas: educational advantage or administrative advantage. Which I'm not really sure. Then does that automatically mean that teacher pay and compensation levels? Uh, that that's not because like are those administrative advantages or are they educational advantages? Yeah, it's an interesting limitation of the criteria by which we assess policy. Uh, of course, she's limiting this because she doesn't want to have to address the very real concerns that parents have. Um, she says the idea of academic transparency is a solution in search of a problem. And I hate this cliche. It's used all the time now as a way to dismiss the legitimacy of an argument that is actually legitimate. Okay. She says the vast majority of education materials, well, such as textbooks, software packages, and education enhancements are already known and are public record. Textbooks, software, workbooks, maps, lab supplies, uh, and other materials come directly from the Department of Public Instruction and are vetted extensively. Other materials are purchased by the local district, but receive a similar vetting process through their curriculum and instruction departments. Yeah. Um... And then you might not know what's actually in them if the Board of Education that approves the curriculum, um, they may not be interested to find out what all is in there. And so they could just rubber stamp it as it goes through, right? You're putting a lot of trust in the administration and the, the elected leadership of these school boards, which is interesting for the union to do because generally they don't do that sort of thing. Anyway, um, the uh, reporting, she says, on every single assignment given or primary source used in every lesson is huge logistical burden for educators and administrators who are already overburdened. Lesson plans are not designed to document the source of all materials used, and many assignments are tailored to the individual student or small groups of students, even in the midst of direct instruction in response to student needs. Okay, well, maybe the lesson plans haven't been uh, sufficiently adequately sourced for somebody else to look at. I get it. Look, I, I've been working in a business, in a profession for a very long time that requires me to take notes. And I'm not the only one, but I take notes all the time. And those notes are not for public consumption, right? I am not taking notes and expecting all of that to be immediately published, right? But... When you start doing it with the mindset of what I am doing right now will be published, you start taking notes in a different way. You start compiling your research in a different way. And I would point out here, I do a ton of research. I do a ton of research for this show, have 
ever since I started doing it, when I was a reporter, did a ton of research, and I post my show prep every single day. I provide links to every article that I am quoting. <laughs> so people, well, patrons of the program, they can go to my Patreon page and see everything that I do. And I've been doing that for a decade, okay? So don't tell me it cannot be done. It can be done. You do it as part of the normal course of the development of the uh, program. And so if you're building a lesson plan and you're like, okay, I'm using this material, then you would just create the link, post it into a document. And by the way, Google Documents, very helpful. You post a link onto a Google document. And then if you hover over the link, sometimes, most times actually, it'll give you the title. So you can actually just one click it and it changes the link, the hyperlink, you know, the www dot blah, blah, blah. It changes that to the title of the article or the material because it's part of the uh, the coding that is already embedded in the whole system. So like this idea that like, like, what do you think you're going through a card catalog using the Dewey Decimal System here and you're having to like manually write all of this stuff down and then take it home and pound it out on an Underwood typewriter? Like, give me a break. Most of this stuff already... It, it, it already flows from one platform to another very, very easily. Um, she says, many teachers are not given their assignments until weeks before classes begin, which already places them in a bind to plan their lessons. The additional hurdle of document weeks. So weeks. You can't, so you can't figure out a lesson plan. You got weeks to figure out a lesson plan, but that's not enough time. Again, I research new content every single day. Again, I might not be the best person here to come cry to because I do most of this work already. <laughs> and, and nobody is saying, hey, Pete, you're a hero for doing this. It doesn't happen. Okay. Also, by the way, you're getting a template from DPI. You just got to stick the stuff into the template. In addition, she says to the logistical concerns, these Invasive requirements would stifle open academic discussion. Well, why would that stifle open, ac open academic discussion? She says, particularly at the high school and university level, if we are to attract and maintain the best and brightest educators and students, we have to keep all of our lessons secret. No, I'm kidding. She says, we cannot adopt policies that will chill academic freedom. So get this. So academic freedom requires parents not knowing what the discussions are or the source material is in these classes. What kind of a mindset is that? Hmm. Yeah. She then says discussion of serious and sometimes controversial topics in a safe and supportive environment is how students learn to think for themselves and the nuisances of the the nuisances. I think she meant to say nuances. The nuance of these conversations will not be conveyed by the title and author of a book. So this is a sleight of hand she's using. The debate wouldn't be about the title or the author of the book. It would be about the content of the book. Now, if somebody said, oh, my gosh, they've got this book, White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo, and that's what this is part of this uh, lesson plan. Well, as one who knows what the content of Robin D'Angelo's book is, like I would have a good understanding of what that debate would be. Somebody who doesn't might not. But what they so what the teachers are saying is that they they don't answer to the parents. That's what they're saying. They're not answering to you, the parents. They answer to who? To whom, I should say. The administration? The school board? Oh, the students, right. To the students. Yeah, it there's a lot of people 
that have been screaming about transparency for the last few weeks, particularly in regards to like body cam footage, that now all of a sudden are demanding secrecy, this cloak of privacy about what we're actually teaching your kid. Listen to some of the replies here. By the way, they've got this hashtag and website called ban the busy work. <laughs> so because it's busy work to tell parents what they're teaching your kid is busy work. Um, so some of the replies. I'd settle for a daily accounting from each parent for how they are supporting their learner at home. Tell me what they ate, how much time you spent supervising their homework and what time they went to sleep. Now, I know they are ready for learning all for the kids, right? So the teacher's response to, a, to parents and lawmakers saying, hey, what are you actually teaching these kids? This teacher's response or this person's response is to say, um, well, I guess it is a teacher, self-described on Twitter. Um, their response is, well, I want to know if you're teaching your kid well. I want to know what you're doing. Really? Well, isn't that interesting? Do you know who pays whom here, right? Do you understand the nature of this relationship? I don't think they do, actually. Um, here's some more replies. I post, share, and send a daily agenda, but I won't give away what I buy to everyone on the web like that. So there's some, so there's some like protection of the fiefdom or something like, like because somebody says, oh, well, there's the issue of copyright. You know, many materials cannot be posted publicly to the web. Yeah, no, not if they're just links. You can you can post links. You can post portions of material as well, all within fair use. You can do all of that. Yeah. See, this is the, these are people who don't want to do a thing and are just grasping at ideas to throw out there to try to block it from taking effect. But I like the one where the, the teacher is saying, like, I, I do this stuff and I'll tell parents, but, you know, I don't want other teachers to get my stuff. So you're afraid, what, that there are other lazy teachers that'll steal your work? Here's here's something, though. If you're a fantastic teacher and you developed a great lesson plan and it's actually educating kids perfectly, why wouldn't you want every teacher to have it? It's about the kids, right? Wouldn't that be for the children? Who cares who gets the credit as long as the goal is achieved? They reveal themselves, don't they? Um, and then this one is my favorite. It's an intimidation move to force a backwards agenda. I think conservatives fear the progressive changes in this country that center people over profits. So wait a minute. You're telling me that conservatives fear something that's being taught in the classrooms. So you're saying that there is stuff being taught in the classrooms that conservatives might object to, and that's why you don't want to tell them what you're teaching their kids in the classrooms? <laughs> so there is something going on that parents should be aware of that's very interesting. They reveal themselves, as I said. All right, that's a wrap for the episode. Thanks so much for listening. Remember, subscribe to the podcast. That's the best way you can help me out. I do appreciate that. Go to thepetecalendershow.com, and we'll talk with you later, and don't break anything while I'm gone.